Good afternoon and welcome to Safeguarding Physician and Patient Satisfaction while integrating EMR solutions with other clinical applications, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by NetScout. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. Send your questions or comments in the Q&A box at any time. We'll take them later in the program, and we're looking forward to a quick one-question audience poll later, so we'll get you involved there. Nice way to view the screen. Click in the top center, get it in side-by-side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to make the video boxes and the slides the size you want them and it should say speaker view in the top right hand corner just so you see how we're going to spend our time today we're going to go about 35 40 minutes on our main panel discussion featuring john henderson vp and cio with chalk children's rich temple vp and cio with deborah hart and lung center and eric gray chief solutions architect with netscout so let's jump right in a lot of good stuff to talk about today uh, John, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Thanks, Anthony. Um, so I'm John, I'm CIO of Chalk Children's. Uh, Chalk is a two-hospital uh, health system in Southern California. Uh, we have uh, about 400 beds between the two primary hospitals. Um, we also have another 30-plus specialty clinics and another 25-plus primary care clinics uh, in the Southern California area. Uh, we're 5,000 associates and another 700 providers. Uh, and we are about $1.2 billion uh, annual revenue organization. Uh, we've been recognized in uh, U.S. News, uh, LeapFrog, uh, among others. And uh, uh, so we're happy to uh, be here to uh, talk with you today. Excellent. Thank you, John. Rich? Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Rich Temple. I'm the Vice President and Chief Information Officer for the Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Browns Mills, New Jersey, which is a in the wilds of Southern New Jersey. And if you didn't know that Southern New Jersey had wilds, it does. So uh, it's, not the, it's not the picture that you have if you've gotten off of Newark Airport, we'll say, but um, it's, very, it's very rural down here and green and uh, very nice. We're a small cardiovascular specialty hospital. Um, we, we're a standalone organization with a large outpatient clinic right here on site. And we have um, affiliated physicians um, out in the community as well. Um, one of the things that's very unique about us is that we are one of three hospital systems in the country that never balance bill patients. So it's us Shriners, it's St. Jude's, and it's us. And that really impacts everything that we do in terms of how we approach patient care. I mean, really the patient coming first without regard, without there being any quote unquote price tag on life, that's our motto, um, is everywhere. And it means that we can all feel really good about what we do as could everyone in healthcare, but uh, we never have any money. <laughs> sort of, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so having cut off that revenue stream, but a uh, very nice place to work. We um, pride ourselves on having excellent uh, quality scores, excellent registry scores, excellent patient satisfaction, and um, some of the six patients in the state as well, just given the nature of our uh, specialties. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, great. Looking forward to it, Rich. Eric? Thanks, Anthony. My name is Eric Gray. Uh, as Anthony said, I'm Chief Solutions Architect with NetScout Systems. NetScout is a leader in network and application performance management for you know, pretty much any vertical in, uh, in the world. We uh, service enterprise, service provider, and uh, government customers all over the planet. 
we uh, handle everything from DDoS de uh, detection and mitigation to uh, real-time application performance and analysis and uh, taking care of the infrastructure and network that makes everything come together. Uh, they say that uh, at any one moment, about one third of the world's internet traffic flows through a NetScout box. So really happy to be here. Uh, I've been with NetScout for about 26 years wow. together and uh, looking forward to this discussion. So you know where the cafeteria is? Um, it's in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I live in San Diego. So I get out there uh, occasionally. All right. Very good. Okay, Rich, let's start with you. I assume COVID has drastically increased your delivery of telemedicine. Can you describe your current application environment as it relates to delivering those services? What's on-prem and what's in the cloud? Sure. Um, at the time that COVID hit, our delivery of telemedicine went through the roof from very little to um, almost everything. Um, interestingly, during the course of 2020, um, it's decreased almost as rapidly, and we're actually not doing a whole lot of telehealth at all. Uh, the nature of what we do as a tertiary care center really necessitates to the extent humanly possible that we um, have our patients on site. And you can imagine all the protocols that we, along with other providers, have to go through to accommodate the traffic that came back. Um, but uh, we, we do have it available to us. We did do it. It did work well for us. And a lot, we were able to really pivot on a dime to be able to render um, uh, telehealth when we had to. Uh, currently, we're on a Meditech platform. We just went live on Meditech Expanse, which is their latest and greatest version uh, early in the month of March. And uh, we use uh, Dr. First Backline Telehealth as our uh, telehealth platform. Uh, that is, it's hosted in the cloud. Um, there are some hooks into the Meditech system. I mean, it can, um, the, tool, the tool can take ADTs. It can send results out to some extent. Um, we didn't make the fullest use of that. Uh, just it, there, were some, there were some issues, and we just were able to go forward and as having, um, having a process that pulled the necessary, uh, pulled likely candidates, I should say, uh, for telehealth um, out of the Meditech daily appointment schedule. And we reached out to patients to see if they wanted to, um, if they wanted to have telehealth visits. And back then, many did. Um, and we we're able to work something out. We'd get people into a virtual rating room, and we'd be able to do the uh, telehealth visit at that point. Um, they said hosted in the cloud. Uh, Meditech also for us is hosted in the cloud in a different place. Uh, so I think we've um, we become converts to the cloud, and we see the value of it. So. It's, it's worked for us. Like I said, um, the fact that we're not doing it so much is not any failure of the technology. It is the reality of the kind of care that we give here um, with very, comp with very complex um, sick patients and the need to uh, be able to bring people in for a lot of procedures. That's our bread and butter. Um, those are things that don't necessarily lend themselves well to telemedicine. But on the other hand, um, it's there when we need it. We're able to do some follow-ups through it. And I'd like to see us expand it. And I think we will as uh, things sort of uh, pivot back to some kind of a new normal. Very good, John. Sure, uh, not much different. Uh, we weren't doing much telemedicine prior to the pandemic, maybe 100 to 200 visits a year. We quickly pivoted uh, and was doing 600 uh, per day. Uh, we've kind of leveled out now around 350 to 360 per day. We think it'll probably stay there, maybe grow a little bit more. Um, that's around 25% of our ambulatory volume today. And we think we're going to stay there, uh, may grow a little bit. Um, we are a Cerner EMR uh, organization. Uh, we've been a long time, uh, since 2001. Uh, we're remote hosted in Kansas City. 
uh, with EMR. Um, we leverage Zoom for our telemedicine platform, cloud, uh, cloud hosted. Um, so we have a, a decent amount of integration. We're doing a combination of a traditional uh, HL7 ADT, um, but we're also doing uh, some APIs with uh, MuleSoft, our, our uh, integration platform, uh, to have some hooks with, with Zoom. Um, I call it more, it's with, with, with the EMR, it's a deeper integration. All the, all the scheduling is happening there. Uh, we've uh, connected our patient engagement uh, platform, uh, HealthGrid solution, which was acquired by Allscripts for our patient outreach. So all of our outreach is going through that. So we have that kind of triangular uh, integration uh, between Zoom, uh, patient outreach, uh, and the EMR. Um, you know, I think one of the things, uh, uh, obviously, the, the patient engagement solution is also uh, cloud hosted. Our approach is really uh, cloud first, uh, unless there's a compelling reason to be on prem. Um, anything that's enterprise, uh, we're completely cloud or SaaS based, um, and that's kind of our, our our trajectory going forward. Eric, what are you seeing? So, uh, not not working for a healthcare organization myself, though, I get the opportunity to spend time with healthcare organizations all over the United States, um, some large, some small, and without a doubt. Um, the COVID pandemic accelerated telemedicine adoption and using that as a first platform um, more than anything I could have imagined. You know, a lot of people had dipped their toe in the water and we're, we're playing around with telemedicine all the way back to like 2012 when Epic introduced their first uh, telehealth hooks. But, you know, nothing could we could have imagined in, in typical enterprise uh, healthcare could have accelerated the adoption. Also, as far as the cloud goes, you know, if people aren't in the cloud, they're going there. It is the probably the largest uh, trend across all of IT, not just healthcare. Certainly, you know my customers that are high tech, manufacturing, um, uh, financial. Everybody is moving into AWS, to Azure, to uh, to Google for their traditional data center. People are going to unplug and completely drop data centers altogether. And I think it's really interesting in the work from home concept as well, driving people more and more towards. Uh, full cloud adoption. Now, as we see the healthcare folks make that shift, it obviously brings up an awful lot of uh, questions and concerns, maintaining HIPAA compliance, making sure that you're uh, adhering proper levels of encryption, all that kind of stuff definitely changes uh, when you have to rely on somebody else to provide your service and your application. Right, and we'll touch more on that, that idea of relying on somebody else. Uh, John, let's go with you on this. How would you describe the level of integration you have among uh, applications from different vendors that contribute to the delivery of telemedicine? You know, I, I would say right now it's it's a combination. It's more of a hybrid. Um, we have some deeper integration with the EMR uh, in Zoom, um, but it's a little bit lighter um, from a patient engagement perspective. Right now, we're in the midst of trying to deepen that integration. And what I mean by that is, as we send out um, our reminders for our telemedicine visits, we really want that experience to be really seamless and frictionless. So when the patient clicks on that, that link from the text message to launch into that visit, we really want them to just be in the waiting room, waiting for that provider to start uh, that encounter. And so that's the piece that we don't quite have up and running uh, today. We're in the midst of making that transition. Um, we also have to take into account uh, telemedicine through our patient portal. Um, that integration, uh, building that out uh, to be much more seamless. Um, as I mentioned before, 
we look at this as a, as a true ecosystem of the EMR, the portal, uh, the Zoom platform, the patient engagement uh, platform, and really having those all work in harmony. So if I'm if I'm rating our, our integration on a scale of one to five, with five being the the, the best and deepest integration, I would say we're at three. Uh, the goal is to get to the five, and uh, over the next several months, uh, that's where we expect to be. Very good, Rich. I think in trying to apply a similar rating to where we're at here at Deborah in terms of integrating the telehealth world with the rest of the um, EHR world, I'd probably give us a two, honestly. I think we could get to three or four, and it is our goal in the short to medium term to do that. But um, by and large, you know, given that it, telehealth wasn't a big um, wasn't a big item on our horizon prior to COVID, and when we had to really pivot just to roll something out, um, when we partnered with uh, when we partnered with Backline, um, we had it up and running like quite literally over a weekend, and it, it worked the vast majority of the time. It was a good product. I mean, it was separate and discreet from our Meditech EHR, um, though there is there was the ability of sending over ADTs. Uh, there were some challenges in terms of, you know, we have to go back and reseed um, backline with every single ADT for any scheduled visit for the next, uh, you know, however, number of months we'd be using it for. And we decided let's not go with that at this time. So I think our integration point was what they used to call the sneaker net, where, I mean, we, um, where we would, we drop, we drop a daily report, um, uh, we, actually over a few days um, to Excel, and then somebody would reach out and call those people. And then once you once you got them into the virtual rating room, then the integration with the different the different modules of the telehealth offering worked very well. And uh, so um, I think we've got, we've got a ways to go. I'm a big believer. I'd like to have as much on a common platform as possible. Because the integration, uh, generally speaking, is just a given, uh, and it just makes everyone's life that much easier if you don't have all those extra steps where there potential is the potential for errors or something going awry. Um, but um, just very happy to be able to have just um, deployed telehealth in such a quick time and, and really have it work. So, uh, like I said, it's um, the volume has gone down markedly, really markedly um, since the middle of last year. But I think there's a place for it. I think we all think there's a place for it. So uh, we're going to be sort of looking anew at how we uh, tie all the pieces together in the months ahead. So, the vol Rich, the volume going down. Um... Does that change the, your prioritization in terms of uh, getting your integration rating up? Do you say, hey, the volumes have gone down, so I'm going to take care of this, but it might not be as urgent as if the volumes were remaining as high as they were? You know, it's yeah, that's a great question. It's not super duper urgent today, like you say. I mean, I'd like to get that number higher. Um, it is not at the top of my list, but it's sort of there. And I also recognize that. Uh, the realities of the world could shift for any of a number of different reasons, and it could pop back up there in a hurry. So, yeah, it's not my highest priority right now, though something I certainly would like to address. Um, but it's one of those things I realize it could really uh, balloon into a very high priority on short order. So I'm, keep, I'm keeping mindful of it. John, is the same thing for you? The, the reduction in volumes make it a slightly lower priority than it would have been? Actually, no, it's actually the reverse. It's in my top five. Um, it's, you know, our VP of Population Health, uh, who also is over our telemedicine program, uh, he's, he wants me to hit the easy button and be there and, and, and get to that level five integration today. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a higher priority. It's, it's part of our strategic uh, plan to, um, to really improve access. Um, and so uh, even though our volumes have dropped, 
uh, we still see it as core to our uh, ambulatory delivery model. So, Eric, very interesting, right? We, we've got uh, both um, Rich and John talking about a two or a three on their scale. John, I love that scale. I think it's very helpful for people in understanding. Um, I wonder if you think, the, Eric, the vast majority out there are in that mid-range and are possibly in the same dynamic of volumes, not what they were. I know I need to do this, but maybe not as urgently as I did a few months ago. So I would definitely, uh, definitely agree. And definitely one of my biggest questions when I meet with uh, healthcare CIOs is, you know, what's the drawdown feel like? You know, I know that the, typically the top three issues in almost all the healthcare companies that I meet with, number one, IoT. IoT integration, dealing with all of the tablets and devices and um, smart beds and everything that's come online. Everything's got an IP address and it's all, you know, a huge concern, how to manage it, how to deal with it. That's always number one. Move to cloud is typically number two or three, depending upon where telemedicine falls. And then you throw in the telemedicine. That's always the typically the top three I hear about. And the drawdown has been interesting because um, as the volumes have decreased as people either go back to somewhat normal or it's not quite as high a priority. They're, they're starting to get care in different ways. Um, it hasn't changed as far as the performance. You know, performance is really important. Um, and an interesting shift that's also gone on, I think, is right at the beginning, especially early last year, it was all about the patient. Patient experience had to be great. So that's why telemedicine stood up, right? You wanted to make things easy for the patient to be able to get the care they need, to be able to make an appointment, schedule um, maybe potentially an on-site visit, get their prescription, deal with their insurance. All that had to be easy. It was all about the patient. But something that's happened, I think, over the last really six months or so is a shift towards the provider. Patients got it and they started to pick up on it. But making the experience better for, for the provider, for the clinician, for the doctor, so that they've got an easy data entry and, and you know, they have to have to put the data in twice, enter it into the telemedicine system and then do it again into the EMR. You know, all of that integration um, makes for a much better experience for the doctor. Uh, and that's a, I think, I mean, and I'm very, very curious if you guys are seeing that in your environments, this shift from patient experience to provider experience. Rich? Um, the patient experience, I think, still reigns paramount to us in terms of setting things up in such a way that the patient has the kind of experience that they would have with Amazon. Now, in a healthcare world, you'll never be able to replicate that because there are so many variables that go beyond anything that Amazon could, you know, would ever have to deal with. But um, I think there, the, uh, the, the shift back to the provider, I think, is somewhat real, but the um, digital front door, the patient experience, patient engagement is still very present there. Um, I think the telehealth component has been removed somewhat from that, but some of the other concepts in terms of being able to easily order refills of medicine, being able to schedule appointments online, being able to uh, communicate with caregivers in a secure way and not have it take two or three days for someone to get back to you. Um, a, lot, a lot of that, a lot of that kind of flow, I think, is still very real. Uh, so, the, I mean, so the telehealth, the telehealth piece, I think, um, yeah, there, I think there's been a bit of a pivot, like Eric said. Um, but I, I don't think we've pivoted away from the patient so much as we focused our um, patient experience on perhaps slightly fewer eggs in the in that basket. 
mm -hmm. uh, where telehealth might not be as big an egg as it is as it was. So I also I also see in the um, academic medical centers I interact with. Um, I think the um, some of them are still really placing a strategic focus on telehealth. So I don't think that's universal that it's um, that it's gone away, but it's um, it is a little different than it was um, mid to late twenty twenty for sure. John, is it important as you as you do your work and to know who your paramount individual you're trying to please is? Does it matter if you say? Can you say it's the patient and the provider? Do you have to pick one and use that as your North Star and then make the other one a number two under it? I mean, what are your thoughts, sir? It's, it's great how you phrase that. Um, it, it is important to communicate what's important. Um, you know, patient experience is, is still very high for us. I mean, I, I think that's, that's probably really our North Star. But we also recognize that physician experience is critical to the patient experience. And so while we can say, and we do say that here, that patient experience is paramount, we also have a tremendous amount of emphasis and actual initiatives to focus on physician uh, satisfaction, physician well-being. Um, and you know, bur burnout is, has been a topic for quite a while in the physician community. Uh, and so it, it's it's critical for us to focus on that and make sure that we're communicating that to our to our physicians. You know, right now we're in the midst of what we're calling a physician optimization effort for all of our specialty clinics, um, and we're we're taking it by by groups and it's a rolling uh, effort to really modernize the tool sets that they're using within the EMR, but also figuring out what can we do from a workflow perspective. How do we build better integration so that they can work at the top of their license and not do some of those tasks that are really burdensome to them that also really frustrate them. So we have a focus on, on that as well, because we know if we address that piece, that means they're going to get more quality time in the visit with the patient, which then translates to the patient has a better experience with their, uh, with their care, with their provider. Eric, anything you want to add there? Uh, I, I can uh, hear like, the truth ringing in my head when you said all that. And, and it's from a practical experience. Like I remember, so last year, somewhere in, in April timeframe, I had to go to the ER. And then I had all these follow-ups afterwards with all these different people. And what I experienced, because all of that, except the ER visit where I had to go live, um, was all through telemedicine. My experience with my provider was always great. I had this, you know, instead of sitting in the lobby for half an hour and waiting in the room for another 20 minutes. And, you know, when I finally got time with the doctor, it was like, you know, five minutes of time and, and he felt rushed and, and really quick. The stuff over telemedicine was great. I felt like I had a 30 minute conversation. It started on time. It ended on time. I got all this wonderful interaction with the doctor. It was fantastic. It increased my experience significantly because of the interaction, the significantly better interaction with the provider. So it just rings so true. Um, not only was performance and, and whatnot and availability of the system important to me, but that uh, it was priceless. I felt cared for. Very good. All right. Next question, Rich, we're going to go with you first. What methods or technologies you employ to ensure both your integration and the performance of your applications remain solid and that if it doesn't, you are alerted? Other than calls to the help desk, right? Well, I think the um, well, that's all. That's always a big one. When something goes wrong, we find out pretty quickly. We yeah. have that built-in human alert. That's for sure. 
Um, our interface engine has a learning capabilities and our network monitoring tools also have uh, learning capabilities as well. So if something goes off the rails, we'll know it right away. Um, it could be that could be from a um, that could be from a uh, full blown infrastructure perspective, as well as uh, from the you know, an interface going down and uh, things backing up. Those are important things for us to know. But um, I think we, we've got that well covered. Um, we're able to react quickly. And, and, and if our, and if our technolo technological alerts don't uh, work the way we want, like you mentioned, Anthony, there's always that help desk. But they'll just call me sometimes because they know where to find me. So um, if something's off the rails, we find it out quickly and we're able to jump on it. John? Oh, very similar. So, um, you know, we have a variety of tools. Our, our interface engine, whether it's our uh, HL7 engine, gives us a tremendous amount of alerting. Uh, some of the uh, other tools with MuleSoft uh, that we leverage uh, for integration also gives us that level of visibility. So if something's uh, down or not working, uh, we get those kind of alerts. Fortunately, um, that's, that's very rare. When you think about application uh, performance and looking at the infrastructure, we have a variety of, uh, of monitoring and alerting tools in place. Um, I will tell you from the infrastructure perspective, we feel really good about that piece. Um, from the EMR, we have some really good tools there, um, but there are some other, some gaps that, that we have to fill. And so we're looking at a couple of uh, tools to, in, in, in the market data to kind of help us give us that deeper uh, understanding of, uh, I call it what's happening at the end user experience level. Um, so we can understand baselines uh, across our endpoints um, and really be in a position to detect and resolve issues uh, from an from a, uh, end user perspective hopefully before they even can call the help desk. Um, so that's where we're trying to get to, um, but that's a missing piece for us. Eric, what are your thoughts? So uh, I think, you know, this is, this is uh, some of the most important stuff and I can break it down into sort of three ideas. First, availability. I think it's critical to be able to monitor the availability of your systems. 20 years ago, we measured everything in terms of a five nines availability score. And that was really all about polling the infrastructure equipment, making sure everything was up, right? But these days, it's not such a big deal. Most things are up. You don't hear about routers going down and servers going down because of redundancy that's in place in most infrastructures and certainly within the cloud. But availability is still critical for the service. Just because the device is functional doesn't mean that the application is available and performing to an acceptable level. That's the second piece is performance making sure that the, you know, not only, as you mentioned, the end user experience, which now is really two people, it's the, as we said a minute ago, the patient and the provider, that both have to have a great experience. The performance has got to be excellent. And how do you verify that? It's one thing to monitor and having monitoring equipment on-prem is critical, capturing packets and analyzing the performance of your devices. But what happens when you move to the cloud? As everything shifts into a hosted environment, now I'm kind of in the, I got to trust somebody else. I want to be able to trust, but verify. So you need some potential uh, flexibility to monitor performance and availability, even for a cloud-based system. Next, you've got your end user, either the provider or the patient, who's not in a place where you can typically see their traffic. They're at home. And a lot of providers are still working, You know, not necessarily in the clinic or in the hospital. They might be working from uh, a remote location and you have to validate their encryption. Last point, you know, how, how do you get visibility into those people when you know, they're not even in a place where you can see their stuff? And the last point is the security issue. 
Um, as we shift the cloud, as we have lots of work from home or you know, uh, access from home people, security issues have gone off the rails this year. DDoS attacks are up tremendously. Everybody is under attack. And the hackers realize, I mean, this is it's been a prime time for them to take advantage of the chaos that's gone on in the world to, to really wreak even more havoc. You know, if they can get their hands on medical records and exfiltrate those out of a data center, you know, that's big money. So how can you protect all of that stuff? So I think oh, those are my three big points, right? Availability, performance, and security are really paramount and more important than ever as you shift over to cloud. John, I'd like to get your reaction to what uh, Eric said. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, the security element that comes into this, it's, 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 it's ubiquitous, it's a never ending. Um, and and it's, it's always morphing, you know, you can't sit still. You know, you know, five years ago, um, cybersecurity was different than what it is today. Um, and you would see changes in, in, in how organizations approach that, particularly in the healthcare perspective. You know, we've always been, a, I'll say, a little bit uh, uh, lagging from other industries and in taking in uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. But things don't, don't change in years in cyber, they change daily. And so having that level of insight and visibility to what's happening on the perimeter, uh, what's happening inside your network equally as important, um, that, that's critical for us, uh, key focus for, for our security officer here. Um, and I completely agree, the application piece is, is, is really what lets us know, are we going to, are we delivering the type, right type of experience and responsiveness with the solutions that our providers are using, as well as how our patients are interacting. Um, the infrastructure is going to be up. Um, that's really no longer a question to, to Eric's point. We expect that, we demand that. Our customers demand that. So uh, we have that covered. It's those other two pieces that uh, we have the focus on and what's, what, what we're spending uh, our investments on and, and our time and energy on today. Rich? In cybersecurity, we could take hours just talking about that because that has morphed into something really, really intense, like Eric noted. And, uh, you know, the, our board is on top of it. Our leadership is on top of it. I'm on top of it. My team is on top of it. I mean, it, we it's the consequences are so dire if something goes awry. And we always we always say that the, um, you know, uh, the, the we have to be a su successful 100 percent of the time in terms of like uh, you know, staving off threats, they only have to be successful once. And uh, the damage they could do is so devastating, it kind of blows your mind. I mean, the damage factor is so much more than it was the, even a few short years ago, the potential of what can happen. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is Eric had raised the idea that we were all talking about not all that long ago. We want, you know, we want 99.999. We want the five nines. Uh, should we go with four nines? Is that okay? And the grand scheme of things, I agree, it doesn't matter because we expect to have lots of zeros or the one in front of it. We expect to have 100% uptime because of all the redundancy. But even when you do have an occasional outage, um, trying to be able to claim your credit is not always straightforward because um, uh, the you know the, the five the five or four nines represents uh, actual downtime and not necessarily a uh, slowing of performance or not necessarily this or that. Um, sometimes if a there were a couple of major carrier outages last year that um, messed us up, and then there's a debate: well, should that count against the downtime or not? Because it was totally beyond our control. You know, there's a force majeure issue. So, uh, so people talked about that a lot, but that's not really the, that's not really. 
the magic ticket in terms of knowing you're going to have dependable service across the board. I mean, it really is the full user experience, full performance, um, knowing that you've got knowing that you've got the cybersecurity baked right in. That's so important. So yeah, I think uh, the world is changing, and I think we're all we're all rowing in the right direction. Eric, anything else you want to add on that? Um, I know definitely. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you know that it's so important for you guys, and you know we we see the same thing across you know everybody. Security is a big, huge deal, maybe more so than ever. And and I am curious about, you know, as you migrate to cloud, one of the things we talked about earlier is, is these critical services, your EMR and your telemedicine systems moving away from your four walls. It's one thing to say, you know, cybersecurity is important when you've got your arms around it. If I've got control of my data center, I can control in, in you know, the access, I can put my firewall on my IDS and all my gear at the edge, I can build a, a tremendous perimeter. We talk about it being, you know, a hard and crunchy outer layer, even though you might be a little soft and chewy on the inside. Um, but having a strong defense when you're on-prem and you control everything, it's within your grasp. As you move to cloud, as you have people all, you know, remote access, security becomes a really difficult thing. Now you have to rely heavily on your provider uh, to be able to adhere to that. It does, Eric, but you know, the thing that I find is that I've got what I like to say is a very small, small but mighty IS department and small but mighty network engineers. These guys are good, but we're small. And um, if something happens in the wee hours and we have to go frantically chase somebody down, um, that's going to be tough for us, even with the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the brain pool that we have available to us. Um, however, if we're contracting with someone else whose whole raison d'etre is to be able to provide this 24 by 7, to be able to have that kind of um, redundancy built in, not only to their systems, but also with their staffing, that there's always someone there. If there isn't someone there, we can grab somebody in a second. That's huge to me. So I think we have to negotiate the right contracts. We have to be able to hold people accountable. We have to be able to have a high level of faith through due diligence, reference, you know, reference checks, et cetera, et cetera that they're really uh, doing what they're saying they're gonna do. Um, but there's just some stuff that as a small department, we wouldn't be able to do unless we hosted it in the cloud. John, anything you wanna add? Sure, you know, I agree with that. You know, we're not a traditionally large IT organization. We're, we're fairly lean. And so we, we lean on a couple of key partners um, um, to help support us. And, you know, I think when you go to the cloud, I think one of the key things that we've come to realize um, is from a from a, how do you manage that perspective? We actually have one third party partner that really helps us understand and assess vendor risk as part of our acquisition process. And another part of that is having someone internal to our security organization that's focused on vendor risk management, helping us uh, perform the various checks that we need to reviewing those SOC two reports. Um, and really giving us better insight on where do we need to spend more time with uh, particular vendors that where we have solutions in the cloud. That's become more of a focus for us. Um, I can tell you 18 months ago, um, that role didn't even exist. We weren't even thinking about it, but we have it today. Um, and uh, I'll tell you my, my chief information security officer, Tony Lakin um, is very, very focused on, on that role and, and what, it, what it has to provide to us. All right, very good. Uh, this is an interesting uh, conversation we're going to get to. John, we'll start with you. What is your general belief or philosophy around service delivery? 
How do you decide what service level you want to uh, offer or guarantee to users? What is reasonable and what is unreasonable? Right. So, you know, I'll say my philosophy is rooted in traditional IT service management service levels. Um, so that, that handles two, two elements, uh, you know, standard request fulfillment, co completely believe you have to do that uh, and have good service levels there. Instant management, same thing. But when it comes to kind of the application solution delivery side, uh, the, the approach that I take is, is it mission critical? Does it fit into that top tier of critical solutions to run the inpatient care delivery, outpatient, um, and, and our workforce? And if it fits into that category, then we want to have that at the highest levels of, of service. Uh, what that also brings into the mix is if it's cloud-based, how does that change what we can offer? Um, does it change what we can offer? Um, sometimes, uh, you know, it, it it creates a scenario where, uh, particularly if you have tons of solutions that are integrated into those cloud solutions, the risk and the exposure from a service level is not necessarily a cloud vendor, but it's the integration between those multiple solutions. That's what we control. Um, and so we focus and put an emphasis on that has to be on all the time. Uh, and so we're we're willing to commit and guarantee um, high levels of service, 90 plus percent service levels from a, uh, how fast we can turn things around to you, but making sure that that application is available 100% of the time. That's not always achievable, but that's really what, what our philosophy and approach is. I'll say the last component is anything that we feel from a solution perspective that uh, we can't guarantee extremely high service levels. We really bake that into the conversation up front with the key business sponsor. We let them know, here's our limitations. Here's the likelihood of something happening where, you, where we may not be able to deliver this because this is really unique in what we're trying to offer. Um, but we also let them know what's the, the, there's possibility, but there's, what's the probability of us having a challenge with our service level. So we have those real world conversations up front. Um, and I'll say for the most part, once we have that, um, we don't really run into any challenges once we move into a production environment uh, with how we manage uh, their expectations. Very good, Rich. I would always be willing to guarantee the highest possible service we could possibly provide to anyone at any time. Like John mentioned, there are some areas where it might be a little bit of a dicier proposition that we could give the highest possible um, service for any of a number of reasons. And uh, also, like John said, that's something we'd want to be able to sort of put out there up front in our dialogues as we go as we go forward. Um, I don't like to guarantee numbers um, because numbers can be twisted in any kind of a way you want. And uh, I think many of us you know, spend lots of time twisting numbers to uh, tell the story that we want to tell. Um, I'm reminded of um, uh, Justice, uh, Justice Potter Stewart of the Supreme Court when he was asked, um, um, can, you define, can you define pornography? And he said, well, I can't, but I know it when I see it. And I think excellent service, you know it when you see it. Um, an excellent service uh, takes on a lot of um, takes on a lot of facets that aren't readily quantified. Are you available? Are you accessible? Will you jump? Will you listen? Will you keep in regular contact with people as issues are being resolved? So I think that my commitment is that we will always be there for you because an IT department um, as an island unto itself really doesn't have any intrinsic value. Our value add, and I think our unique value add is that we can help lift all the boats around us at the hospital, 
by providing an excellent level of service and supporting their technology. So uh, I think that's always front and center of everything we do. I hate to guess. I guess I hate to guarantee numbers, but um, they should know that if they have um, that if that uh, anyone in this hospital if they have an issue, that we're going to be their partner in trying to fix it. And if we can't do an absolutely spectacular job just because of the um, circumstances and the nature of that request, uh, we'll be upfront and transparent as to why. Eric, what do you see going on out there? Um, very much what you guys are saying. Everyone wants to deliver the highest possible level of service for both patient and provider, as we mentioned before. And uh, you know, one of my customers went through a pretty exhaustive six-month study and measured quality on all of their telemedicine interactions. And it, it's, it's daunting to do that. Every single transaction measured over the course of that period of time. And they focused on the quality of the audio and video uh, delivery back and forth between the patient and the doctor. And what they found is over a six month period, they were getting roughly 91% MOS scores above, you know, in the acceptable level of over, over four. Now MOS score, you know, in the old world was pretty, you know, it's just an opinion. What did somebody think about the quality of that phone call? Today, you know, we've got some phenomenal algorithms that allow you to calculate digital MOS scores for video and voice and, and really get pretty accurate and simulate what, a, what an end user might feel is their quality. We still want to be able to deliver the highest quality. And if it's all about opinion, you know, measuring is really important. Now, back to my number, like 91% were acceptable. That means that 9% weren't. <laughs> there was a lot of people that were experiencing a bad day during that study. I read another article about, and this is uh, relating to um, Microsoft Zoom, I'm sorry, uh, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and WebEx combined. 82% of people over the last year have complained about the quality of using the typical interaction uh, collaboration service. Uh, I know the numbers have gone through the roof. Everybody's doing what we're doing right now, talking on Zoom, talking on WebEx. That's how they do their meetings. You know, the numbers went crazy, but 82% of people complain about quality. Um, Rich said something, you know, by, by quoting someone, you made me think of my favorite quote. Um, Rear Admiral Grace Hopper once said, and she was a founder and, you know, and, and a pioneer in the computing industry. Um, but it's my favorite quote. One accurate measurement is worth a thousand expert opinions. And when we talk about delivering high performance and high quality uh, service delivery to your, to your end user, I believe very strongly that it's important to measure it, not just have an opinion. I think it's okay. I'm not sure, but to actually put instrumentation in place, measuring that and, and coming up with as good a number as you possibly can. All right. Very good. I'm going to have a little fun here. I got a poll question we're going to throw out to the audience. Most health system help desks are not equipped with the tools and experience needed to diagnose and or resolve the application performance problems experienced by users accessing the network from home. I know it's long. I'm launching it now. Agree or disagree. And the point is that the help desks are having to deal with issues that they uh, are not equipped to deal with. The, the, this is new. Um, you know, all these people accessing things from home and um, they're just not not in a position to diagnose those problems. So let's give that a minute. Let's let people uh, respond to that. Everyone, what are your panelists too? By the way, you are allowed to vote. So go ahead and vote. 
Um, and then we're going to go with our Ask a Co-Panelist feature. I am interested in hearing what you have for each other. So, Rich, I'm going to go to you first. You have a question for one or both of your co-panelists. I do, actually. I have a question for John. So you're overseeing um, all, ma all matter of technology and uh, tools for patient experience in a children's hospital. How does that, uh, how does that differ, do you think, from a, um, uh, the, the patient experience initiatives that you'd have at a more traditional hospital? Wow. Um, so I think, I think overall, conceptually, it's, it's fairly similar. I think where the difference comes in is um, we're targeting the patient is the child, but who we are actually interacting with is the parent who's bringing the child. Uh, and so it's a very similar uh, in, con in, in, in concept, but one of the key things that happens in California, it's at 12 years old when I was in Texas, it's 13. So there's a delineation of what the parent can know about the visit. Um, and so there's, they, they can know a little bit less about certain things, particularly sensitive uh, type of visits, whether it's um, someone coming to get a pregnancy test. Um, so the parent, not really allowed to know that. So we have to have really tight controls around what we can communicate to the, to the parent, the caregiver of, of that child as part of our uh, patient experience. Uh, so it makes it a little bit challenging and more complicated. Um, that's, I think that's really that key thing for us, um, just those types of rules and regulations that we have to adhere to, wherein uh, if it's only adults, we don't have to worry about that at all. It makes it, makes it a little bit cleaner and simpler. Well, that is fascinating. Thank you. All right. Very good. Appreciate that, Rich. Uh, we're going to go back to the poll here, and I'm going to have my panelists guess at the percentage agree. So on this question, what is the percentage agree? John, you got to give me a number. I'm going to say 75 to 80. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want a range. Oh, I want a number. number. All right. All right. Uh, I'm going to say 85% agree. 85, Rich. I'm going to say 95% agree. 95 for Rich. Eric? 42% agree. Oh, Eric. Oh, he's covering, oh, the, Eric. He's covering the low, right? Oh, Eric. <laughs> All right. Well, our winner is definitely John. 74% agree that they're not set up, they're not equipped to handle what's going on. So. I thought Rich was going to be right on that one. Yeah. Well, John, when you started your range, I think you started at 75. You could have been right on. Could have been right on. Could have been right on. You could have won a lot of money. But, you know, what are you going to do? Get his vote two or three more times, right? And then Yeah. All right. Back to co-panelists. Eric, question for one or both. Um, I'll throw this out to both of you. And and we we started down this path earlier. Since things have changed and, you know, we've begun to see uh, telemedicine drawdown in volume, not as many uh, active interactions going on as COVID is starting to draw down to a degree. The, the vaccine, vaccines are getting out and all that stuff. We're getting back to the normal. Um, do you guys feel that there's still going to be some middle ground where you're going to settle out into? I mean, before COVID, there, 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 was, there was telemedicine, but it went crazy during COVID. 
Do you feel like you're going to settle in somewhere in the middle or will it draw back to, all the way down to sort of pre-pandemic levels on the delivery of healthcare through, you know, through these digital means? Uh, Rich, why don't you go first? Well, I think telemedicine went through a trial by fire last March and really came out very successful. I mean, I'm sure everyone's deployment had various uh, degrees of bumps in it, but at the end of the day, we were able to pivot as an industry with incredible speed toward doing telemedicine. So it proved its case. And uh, I think it also enlightened people as to some real strategic benefits of going with telemedicine. However, I think, you know, old habits die hard. And when we were able to bring folks back to the hospital, we tried to do that. But still, it's fresh in our minds that there are a lot of um, real patient satisfiers that we can offer. And Eric, you had mentioned that you um, ha had some really fabulous experiences with telehealth, as have I. I mean, so I, I really do get it. Um, so I, I think that we're probably going to, it's probably, the pendulum's going to swing back somewhat. I think one of the big um, predictors of how much that pendulum is going to swing back is to what extent Medicare continues to pay out at parity for telehealth, because um, that's starting to slip a little bit. Early on, all the insurers paid out at parity for telehealth versus in-person visits. And uh, we're seeing that starting to slip a little bit, even though technically it's not supposed to. And uh, we don't know what Medicare's plans are for the long haul. And I think that's going to really loom large in terms of just how much will uh, telehealth bounce back. John? You know, I'm going to be a bit more optimistic around what uh, the reimbursement is going to look like in the future. I think the numbers for telemedicine is going to grow. Uh, and the reason for that, um, even though things have kind of dropped here, it kind of settled into a 25% of overall volume, I still think that number is going to grow post pandemic. The main reason for that is I still think there's a tremendous amount of uh, improved access to care that telemedicine can provide, particularly for areas that are uh, economically disenfranchised across this country. Um, in, 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 in California as well. I think there's still a tremendous opportunity uh, for, for healthcare to make telemedicine, telehealth available uh, in those settings that is convenient. Our patient satisfaction scores for telemedicine, telehealth visits are, you know, 90 plus percentile. Um, our, our patients love that experience and interaction because it's convenient for them. You know, I think the, 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 the millennial Gen Z, um, that type of experience is only going to grow. Uh, so I, I think it's, 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 it's here to stay and it's gonna continue to grow. Assuming um, that optimistic side of me that uh, the payment piece will get worked out. All right, very good. Listen, we're running a little short on time. Eric, I wanna give you a minute for a final thought. Uh, well, Anthony, thank you so much for, uh, for coordinating this and giving us the opportunity to, uh, to speak to the group. Uh, Rich and John, it's absolutely been a pleasure to, uh, to hear your insights into your respective organizations and, and what you guys see as priority. Um, I just think this has been a, a great session. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. Oh, very welcome. Well, that is about uh, all we had time for today. Regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming events. With that, I want to thank our panel very much, John Henderson, Rich Temple, and Eric Gray. I want to thank NetScout for sponsoring 
And I want to thank our attendees for continuing to join our webinars. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.